All right, good morning, Redemption. Hope you're all doing well. Glad that you are here. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. And uh, just so you know, I am wearing red. It's my socks. So it is, if you really want to investigate, you can look later. There's people have been asking, why aren't you wearing red? Whatever. Okay, so um, we showed a video about uh, the Advent, part, part of the Advent offering, and I just wanted to mention that again. V- very important part of our uh, church life. Uh, you guys have always been so generous, and, and already we, uh, we see um, the offering coming in, and that's been really good. But just a reminder that uh, we are doing foster care and adoption this year. Uh, every other year we do that. And then this year we're also doing um, Immigrant Hope for Ethiopia, which is a ministry that we've been involved in now for more than a year. Uh, and we've been a big help to them, and that's been really good. And then also a new one, uh, Immigration Hope. At the end of that <clears throat> foster care and adoption video, you saw uh, Chris Amaro, who is the pastor of our church at Redemption uh, West Mesa. And uh, not only has he and his wife, have he and his wife been involved in foster care and adoption and, and, and doing that for uh, the last three years, but he has also been catalytic in getting Immigrant Hope uh, started in West Mesa, an area that really needs it for legal immigration. And so we want to be able to help them and be a blessing uh, to them in, in the midst of, of uh, them getting that started as well. So if you want more information about that, like Allison said, you can go back and, and see her. So um, we are in Micah today. We're continuing in this series in the Minor Prophets. And by now, you should be seeing some patterns if you've been here um, uh, many or some of the Sundays with us. And, and today, there are going to be times, four or five times, when I'm going to stop, and, and I'm going I'm to hope that those of you who are note-takers, by the way, I appreciate that you are note-takers, that's awesome, but those of you who are note-takers, if you would just stop writing during these times and look up here and, and really listen. There are some really important points uh, Every week there are important points, but this week especially, I'm very excited about uh, what we want to talk about uh, that we can get at in Micah. You've already seen the video. It's covered a lot of the themes there. Some of the things I'm going to reiterate, we're going to go deeper in uh, other things as well, but here's the very first one, uh, just right out of the gate, and it's not only in Micah, but it's throughout um, uh, all of the minor prophets, I think we've been able to determine that there is this theme, and here it is. God has a long game. God has a long game. Uh, What we mean by that is that there are things that God has set in place and promises that that he is going to keep that are to fulfill all of our inheritance in Christ Jesus, but it's a long, long game. Uh, In fact, Uh, The people that the prophets spoke to, the vast majority of them, nearly 100% of them, never actually experienced God's long game in their lifetime. It was something that would come after their lifetime. But just like the Israelites, just like God's people then, we have a problem with that now. We really do. We want a short game. We want to know right now what God is doing and how we're going to be blessed for it. And we want everything fixed and we want to know our purpose right now. And we need to remember that when we're confused and when we, when we feel like maybe God isn't there, when we're not sure, 
when we see things around us and maybe in our own life that are falling apart and we wonder where God is, we need to remember that our hope is in the fact that God has a long game. So remember God's long game. If you're familiar with the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, many of those Psalms are people wrestling with the fact that God doesn't seem to be present in their life in that moment. They're psalms of lament. They're psalms of, of mourning. They're psalms of complaint. There's psalms where the psalmist is shaking his fist at God. Where are you? I don't see you right now. I don't feel you right now. I had a friend a few weeks ago tell me, I can sum up the book of Psalms, 150 psalms, in two short sentences. God, where the heck are you? And God, you are my rock. We live in that tension. And we need to remember that God has a long game. So, looking at Micah specifically, uh, every one of the prophets has some commonality with the other prophets, and we can find that. But also, every one of the prophets has something that makes them different from the other prophets, and Micah is no different. For instance, Micah, he has a message that's very similar to Amos and to Isaiah. You heard the video say that he's a contemporary of Isaiah, as a matter of fact. But while he has a message similar to them, he's also someone who is not identified so much by who he is. Most of the prophets, if we get an identification of who they are, it's based in who their people are, who, who their line is, who they're related to, but not Micah. We don't get any of that information on Micah, but rather we get information about where he is from. We don't know his family or his ancestry Nobody's done a 23andMe study on him, but we do know that he's from an area of Judah that is 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem, the capital, capital of the southern kingdom. And so what that tells us is that he is deeply southern kingdom. He's deeply Judah. If you recall, Amos was from the southern kingdom, the northern part of the southern kingdom, and he was called to preach specifically to the southern kingdom. Micah is deeply southern kingdom. And, and, and while Micah does preach primarily to the southern kingdom, he also has, as the video mentioned, some messages for the northern kingdom. He tells them that the Assyrians are coming. His ministry, Micah's ministry, is dated approximately 735 to 725 B.C. And the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722. So it's very close to when the uh, Assyrians came in. But Micah truly, most of his message, leans into the later Babylonian conquest in Judah, which starts in 605. And he is especially strong in the remnant and the recovery after the Babylonian exile. And his message his messages, he has, a, he has a bunch of different messages, but his messages focus with laser-like precision on the leadership of God's people. You, you heard the video reference that a couple of times, and that's true. He really gets after the leadership. He goes after the religious leadership, the royal leadership, the governmental leadership, and the business leadership. What, whatever kind of leadership there is, he goes after all of it. Now, Here's what you need to hear, though. 
This does not let the masses off the hook. You, you can't say Micah's message is just to the leaders, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. That, that's not the message of Micah. He's starting with the leaders and on top of the leaders. But we need to remember that all the people are still accountable for their own actions, for their own relationship with God. This doesn't let them off the hook. But there is, we need to understand and recognize, there is this reality that people in their ignorance can and will be led astray. Like believing everything that you read on Twitter or Facebook without first checking it out. Now, I know that's a simple one, but you realize how much really bad information is out there on social media that we read or see, and because it lines up with the narrative that we want to have, we're willing to go ahead and send, just keep forwarding it out without checking it out, and then we find out that it's completely false. It's that old saying, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth even has time to put its shoes on. That, that happens a lot. It's like trusting your college professors to have an agenda of education without manipulation. It's like assuming that your political leaders are purely other-oriented and servant-hearted, Democrat or Republican, Green Party or Independent. It's like putting your faith in the idea that any person working for God is above corruption and sin. And, and, this may be the most difficult one. It's like truly believing that your own heart is the only thing that you can trust. You see, leaders should be held to a higher standard. And, and God mentions that a few times in Scripture. But that does not let the masses off the hook because our own hearts are so quick to deceive us. And that's a message that most of us really don't care for in the Bible, but it's all over the Bible. It's Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, which we quote all the time, but then there's Numbers 15, 33, one that we don't mention too often, but uh, maybe it's because of the coarse language that God uses there. Uh, God says in Numbers 15, 33 that we need to be reminded of who God is, his character, what his commandments are, what his call is on our life. And the reason we need to be constantly reminded of that is because you and I as human beings, and these are God's words, not mine, we tend to whore after the desires of our hearts. Whore after. We're willing to prostitute ourselves for the desires of our hearts at the expense of what God calls us to. And this is a big part of Micah's message this morning. Now, this is a seven-chapter book, and, and really what it is, is it's a collection. It's, it's sort of a random, disparate collection of Micah's most poignant sermons during his ministry. Because of that, there is a distinct pattern in the book, but there's also this sense of this sort of jerkiness to it. It's a little bit jerky uh, when you read it. It, it doesn't flow beautifully. Uh, as a narrative all the time. But in the midst of that jerkiness, there is a clear contrast between the rebellious nature of human beings and the loving character of God. And so Micah organizes the messages in this collection as doom and hope, as judgment and forgiveness, as consequence and anticipation. 
And God is portrayed in this book as both prosecutor and shepherd, as both judge and redeemer, both, both. So here's one of those places I want to stop and just get your attention, because this is really important. Um, We're going to fast forward to the New Testament. The same is true of Jesus. The same is true of Jesus, specifically on the cross. Jesus on the cross was both. Both. He, He was both punishment, which he took from God on our behalf, and he was forgiveness, which he freely gave to us as a result of taking that punishment on the cross. Both punishment and forgiveness. He was both wrath which he endured from God so that we wouldn't have to endure God's ultimate wrath. And he was grace. He took God's wrath and then bestowed grace on us. So he's both wrath and grace. He is both judging and loving. He accomplishes both. He's justice and grace. He's judge and redeemer. Jesus is both. And that's a beautiful thing, and that is the gospel. Now, this doom and judgment in Micah, both of these things are broadly spelled out in the four major sins of the leaders and people. Not, these are not all the sins mentioned, but these four major ones are mentioned. And, and it's generally the same sins that you and I wrestle with today. Pride, self-righteousness, injustice, and idolatry or trusting false gods or false gospels. And our hope and redemption, so here's the other side of that, the pattern of Micah, our hope and redemption is also clearly spelled out for us in four realities. The remnant that God is going to make sure that he has of his people, those who believe, the remnant. And there's going to be a Messiah that comes for the remnant, that's Jesus, and he's going to bring his kingdom, and we have an inheritance in that kingdom. So that's our our hope and our redemption there. In other words, as we've said before, God's justified judgment precedes his merciful salvation, and we really can't have it any other way. His justified judgment precedes his merciful salvation. But this is also really important as well. And the video hit on this also. Micah says that our redemption is not just about being blessed and forgiven. It is also equally, if not more, about being a blessing to others. We don't get to just receive the blessing. We also have to be purveyors of the blessing. And that is often the true measure of a person's faithfulness. The faithful person is not just serve. The faithful person does not just get to receive, but the truly faithful person gives and serves and adds value everywhere they go. If you're somebody who can add value everywhere you go, you will find people respond pretty well to that in every context. And the faithful person adding value everywhere they go, they delight in doing so. It's not hard for them. They, they enjoy doing it. Micah's very strong on this point. It's Micah 6, 8, essentially. There is no redemption without responsibility. And for you and I who know Jesus, 
what he has done is incredible. It's the best, but we need to remember it's not over there. Um, if you've ever run a marathon, you register for a marathon, and you're required to tell them the time that you, will an you anticipate that you will finish the marathon in. So you send them your time. So let's say you're going to finish in four hours, okay? So the winners of the marathon are going to be somewhere around two hours and 15 minutes. And you submit four hours, which, by the way, is not a bad marathon, four hours. Nevertheless, they're going to then tell you, after you've registered and you've given your, your anticipated time, they're going to tell you, well, you're going to be in a particular corral. They call them corrals, okay? And, and if you're an elite runner, you're going to be in corral number one, which is right at the very front of the starting line. But there's usually thousands and thousands of people at these marathons. So they have to have a way of organizing it so that the slow people don't get up in the front and then cause all kinds of problems. And so if you're a, a four-hour marathon runner, you're going to be in corral four or five. You're going to be way down the line. There's usually nine, ten, eleven corrals. So if you're in corral four, number, uh, I'm very familiar with corral four and five, in case you were wondering, okay? So if you're in corral four or five, you, you hear the marathon start, the gun go off, the whistle, what, the horn, whatever it is. You hear it, but you're nowhere near the starting line, and it takes you anywhere from a minute to two minutes, 60 to 120 seconds to actually cross the starting line. You're nowhere near the starting line. And so you, you, you run up to the starting line or walk up to the starting line with your hands on your, on your clock because you want to you start your stopwatch as you cross the starting line. And then you run the marathon, okay? Now, what's the point of all of this? The way so many people treat their salvation in Christ is it's, there's this big lead up to when they give their lives to Christ, when they cross the starting line and begin to live for Christ and then they cross that starting line and then they stop and they go off the track. I've been saved. I'm done. Everything's finished. Now I get to live in bliss. Now my life is going to be perfect. Now it's going to be peaceful. There's going to be no persecution. I'm not called to anything. I'm not called to respond to, to God's blessing. We just want this perfect, blissful life. It, it's the picture of of when you get to just jump on an inner tube and float on the pool and just lay there. That's not the life that God calls us to. And that has always been the same problem with Israel. They experience redemption. They experience salvation. They experience a miracle of God. And pretty much within five minutes, they're back to this ethos of whining and entitlement. That's a problem. And we experience the same thing too. All right, let's jump in. Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through a little bit of 5, and then 8 and 9. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth, that's that place that's 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria, the northern kingdom capital, and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom capital. Hear you, peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. In other words, he has the right to be saying these things to you. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. He has the power 
and the sovereignty to do this. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And then Micah himself says this, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, her, Jerusalem, Judah, her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So, again, I'm very excited. I have my laser pointer, which means I have a map. So, just to give you an idea of, of what everything looks like. So, here's Israel, the northern kingdom's capital, Samaria. Here's Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, the capital, Jerusalem. So, Micah's from right about there. But this is what the world looked like in the days of Micah. Assyria was the one superpower with its capital in Nineveh. And let me just tell you, the Assyrians, historically, we know from history, perhaps the cruelest people in the history of the world. And I know there have been some cruel people. But, but most historians will say the Assyrians are pretty much the champions of this. I've read some things that they do to, cap, uh, to, to people. They've captured things they did during war absolutely beyond anybody's imagination in this room. Really awful stuff. And they built this huge empire. And you, and you notice down here, Babylon was a part of that empire. And there's Persia, essentially Susa, which plays later. But here's Babylon. So in 722, Assyria finally came down this corridor here and went into Israel and destroyed and sacked Israel and carried off their people and made them marry, uh, intermarry. Uh, but it was about um, uh, 110 years later, Babylon marches into Nineveh in 612 BC and sacks Nineveh and becomes the new world power. And then in 605, they come in and sack Jerusalem. So this is the geopolitical uh, understanding of Micah's world at that time, just to give you some context. Now, the judgment of Micah, just like in Habakkuk, is inevitable. Micah says it's too late. You had your chance for decades. You had chances for centuries even. And Micah says, I am lamenting the fact that this judgment is coming, and I'm lamenting so strong that, that I am stripped and naked. What does that mean? Well, this, it, this symbolizes the worst kind of lamenting, the worst kind of grief that you can experience. Usually, lament happens by you put on sackcloth and you, and you dump ashes over your head. He, he's saying, I'm not even going to bother with that. I'm just taking off all my clothes, and I'm going to go through town, and I'm going to preach like that. That might get a little bit of attention, okay? That's how strong his grief is. And then he uses this metaphor. It's going to sound like jackals and ostriches. So I've never heard the night wails of jackals and ostriches, but apparently it's awful. There's nothing worse than listening to the night wail of a jackal or an ostrich. So anybody live around jackals and ostriches? The animals, not... Anyway, go on. Okay. So it's powerful imagery. And so Micah comes out of the gate absolutely flying. There is no spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. He's just right at you. And by the way, that is my first and last Mary Poppins sermon illustration ever, okay? So you move into chapter 2, 6 through 13. Micah's now kind of having this little dialogue with the leaders of Judah 
Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So he's, he's saying what the people are saying back to him now after his message gets started. And he writes, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walk, walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. Away from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for his people. He's tickling ears. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, their Lord at their head. So here's what Micah says. He says there's going to be doom for the hypocrite, the oppressor, the false teacher, and there's going to be protection and provision for those who remain faithful in a corrupt and hypocritical society. Isn't it hard to remain faithful in a corrupt and hypocritical society? Everybody else is doing it, and I might as well get in on the action, right? It's hard to do that. So, like Malachi last week, Micah is seen as a heretic because the people are saying, stop this preaching. You don't know what you're saying. Everything's fine. The Assyrians won't come. The Babylonians won't come. They're saying, stop this preaching, you heretic. Micah answers, you know, if you're faithful, you have nothing to worry about. But, of course, they do worry. They worry because God's own people have, have risen up as God's enemy. That's what Micah says. God gave him that message. They're hypocritical, they oppress the weak, they game the system, and they flout the commands and compassion of God. And then Micah truly crosses the line. He tells the people that everything they have gained, their land, their riches, God's going to take from them. There's nothing you can do to protect that. There's no way to foresee this destruction and prevent this destruction that's coming. But Micah then, again, offers hope to those who remain faithful. He says, your shepherd is going to gather you and protect you. Your warrior king will go before you and conquer your enemies. But then again, as the pattern of the book continues, you see in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, one of the most stinging rebukes in all of the Bible Listen to what he says here. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, you leaders, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. You make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is, this not, is, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. 
Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be a plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. You look at verse 9. Just reminds me so much of one of the most important verses, I think, in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon had written 300 years earlier. It's, it's chapter 1, verse 15 of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, you can't make a crooked stick straight. You can't make what's crooked. You don't have the ability. Human beings don't have the ability. And, and, and the amount that we would have to come up with in order to straighten out this world you, you can't even count it because it's just too much. It's infinite. You know, humans get caught up in this idea that we can fix everything that's wrong. And God is saying, you should try. You, need, you are called. You, you, you should be working for the good of those around you. That's true. Everyone is called into service and into a ministry. But you're not going to straighten out the world. You, you're not God. You don't have the power to be able to do that. Okay? But Micah says kind of the opposite. He, he says, but here's what we humans do have the ability to do. We can take that which is straight, that which is perfect, that which has no flaws, and we can figure out a way to jack it up really fast. We can take that which is straight and make it crooked. In fact, we specialize in taking that which is straight and making it crooked. And then once we've made it crooked, what do we say? Well, I got us into this mess. I'm going to get us out. And then we try to straighten it out, and we make it even more crooked. That's what Micah's saying. He's saying, we have an issue here that can only be dealt with by God. And notice Micah goes after all of the leaders. The prophets, the priests, the governors, the judges, and the business heads. And Micah does not mince words. The judgment is going to be complete and devastating. It makes you ask the question, why do we toy with God? Why do we mock God's sovereignty and power? And yet again, even in the midst of that, there's rescue. There's a remnant. There's redemption. Look at 4, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. He says the lame will become strong. But he says the lame won't become strong because of their will or their strength, but because of God and his grace. This does not mean that the lame somehow have better character than others. And it's a big mistake to take it that way. But a lot of people do. The problem with that is that that, that is this, this constant push that we have in our culture that, that seems righteous but is misguided. That, that the poor are better than the rich. That the prisoner is better than the free. That that the oppressed is better than the oppressor? Not necessarily. The, the proper biblical understanding of the human condition is that we are all deficient in some way. Our deficiencies vary, but the point is we all fall short of the mark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to understand that. 
The, the problem is, uh, researchers have looked into this for decades. There's this thing called the social comparison process that we all engage in. We love comparing ourselves to others. Because sooner or later, we're going to be able to compare ourselves to someone that makes us feel pretty good about ourselves. We're okay. We're fine. Now, you may, you may be wired like Eeyore, so you're constantly looking for people that make you feel worse than everybody else, and then you feel, you feel really good about yourself because of that. The, the point is, is that we're comparing ourselves to others, and that isn't what Scripture calls us to. Who are we supposed to compare ourselves to? Jesus. He's perfect, and he's holy. Matthew 5.3 puts all of this on a level playing field. He starts, uh, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and the first one is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Blessed are those who understand that they are sinners, they are deficient, they are part of the problem, and the only one who can make up that gap is God. It's not trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and make yourself better than someone else so that you can feel good about yourself. The poor in spirit understand that they need God, and God is the only solution for what ails them. So what Micah is saying here is that whatever... Whatever you and I think salvation is, God is going to shock us because it's not morality. I'm a good person. Good for you. It's not morality. It's not self-righteousness. It's not attaching yourself to the right social cause. It's not the correct political platform or party or policy your salvation isn't because you're poor or oppressed or marginalized, and it's not because you're wealthy and you have status and power. Your salvation is in your relationship with God. Your salvation is in grace. It's by grace we are saved through faith. Our salvation is in belief, trusting God. Here you go. Our salvation is all the stuff that you and I tend to deem as really sweet, and nice little notions, but not enough. There has to be more. There has to be something that I bring to the party that God is going to honor, and he's going to recognize that I'm good enough to save myself. We often talk about, in terms of Old Testament history, we often talk about how God's past people had this very incorrect understanding that those who were rich in their culture were obviously righteous. If they were rich, they were obviously righteous because God has shown them favor. Why would he show them favor unless they were righteous? And he showed them favor economically. That was kind of the formula that a lot of them had. That, of course, is wrong because it's God's grace that saves. But today's incorrect understanding is similar. It's similar. It's this idea that if you're poor, marginalized, or oppressed, you have a moral superiority to all others. And God recognizes that and bestows favor on you. It's wrong again. It's not our status that saves us. It's not anything that we've done that saves us. It's God in his 
holiness, in his character, in his love, who reaches out and saves us through his grace. Micah reminds us of that over and over and over again. And look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And here's another place where I want you to really focus in. This is Israel's story now. Micah gives them a little history lesson to remind them of who God is and what his character is. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? And what happened to, from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the saving acts of the Lord. He's reminding the Israelites, of their story with God. He's saying, look at what God has done for you. This is your story. It's one of constant salvation, victory, grace, redemption, constantly. And then you just turn around. You turn from me so quickly. How long did it take? They, they, the Israelites whined essentially for 400 years about being slaves in Egypt. And, and God, through Moses, leads them out and, and how long did it take them to start whining about that? Five, ten minutes? See, here's, here's the deal. Everybody has a story, and everybody's got a story. And, and, and Come on, focus, look up here. There is a big difference. Everybody has a story, and everybody's got a story. Now, I love story. You've heard me say that. I love story. I love the stories that you guys have. And I love hearing those stories. I, I mention all the time, I, I love sitting down with coffee with especially new people that I haven't really gotten to know yet and, and hear their stories, the stories they have, the stories of their, their marriage or their family or their work or their faith or what God is doing in their life as a single person. I love hearing the stories that you have. But I'm also often troubled by story. It's not the story you have, but the story you got. God has given us all a story, the story we have, but we often want what we think will be a better story than the story is given, that God has given us. That's the story we got. That's the story that you and I work very hard to acquire, to construct, and to manipulate. Israel has a story. It's a story of redemption, exodus, grace, and rest, and that story comes from God. They were a significant minority people, and God came and showed them favor and blessed them. That's the story they have, but Israel's also got a story. It's a story that they construct, just like you and I. It's the story of, well, we deserve better than this. It's the story of, this isn't fair. It's the story of, my way is better than God's way. It's the story of, I need, I need 
Not only do I need, but I'm, I'm entitled. I'm entitled. It's the story of, I've been offended. Nobody should offend me, least of all God. You know, Adam and Eve had a story. Paradise and perfection. That was the story they had. What was the story they got? What was the story they constructed? Yes, the adversary helped them construct that story, but that story became, God's holding out on us. I think we have a better way. And what happened to them? Everybody has a story. Everybody's got a story. We need to know the difference, and we need to be careful. Rich and poor, they both got stories. The rich often bribe or intimidate because they believe that they're deserving and they want to protect their power, but the poor also. They often manipulate through narrative and through guilt because they too believe that they are deserving and moral. This is really hard for a lot of us, but it's also true. Justice is not about one people group over another. But that's the way our culture seems to be set up today, right? And we attach ourselves to those movements. It's not the rich and the poor. It's not this group and that group. Here you go. Look up here. Asterisk time. It's all of us and Jesus. Those are the two categories. Jesus and everybody. And we'll never understand the justice of God, the grace of God, or the fact that we need God until we begin to see our human situation in those terms. It's us and Jesus, and we need Jesus. And that's where Micah ends, verses 18 through 20, what Nick read this morning. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. This is a, the, the end of the third person part of the narrative, and now we go into the second person part. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God has a long game. God has a long game. You know what the name Micah means, by the way? It, the, the, the name Micah means who, who is like Yahweh, who is like God. Verse 18, Micah says, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Why this question? Who is a God like you? Because God alone, after all the offense, after all the sin, after all the savagery, after all the evil, because God alone forgives, redeems, delivers, and saves. And he sends his son, Jesus. His perfect, sinless, just, and righteous son. And he gets the judgment. He gets the cross, not us. He gets all of that. And what we get is his holiness. In case you're wondering, that's what's called substitutionary atonement. Our sins have been atoned for. They have been paid for by a substitute. Somebody else did it for us. Atonement by the other for us. 
substitutionary atonement. No one is like God. Our inclination is to is almost always to the dark, the self-vindication, the retribution for others, justice by revenge. Um, I, there's a terrific book. It's not a theological book, but I just finished reading it a couple weeks ago. It's called Red Notice. Has anybody read, it, read the book? It's by Bill Browder. You ha- oh, wow, powerful, right? Unbelievable. Even started following him on Twitter. He didn't notice. Um, but anyway... Um, he, he was talking about uh, the culture that he was working in, and, and it's a culture of deep revenge. Uh, he says th- the people that he works with, that he worked with, he said um, they will sabotage their own life in order to just get back at somebody else. They're willing to give up everything that they've worked for if they can have revenge. You know, all of our hearts are bent that way a little bit. He tells this parable. It's not a biblical parable, but he tells this parable. He says, there's this guy who's walking along a beach. Um, He finds a talking fish, and he's the first one to find the talking fish. And the talking fish says, you found me. You're the first one, so you get a wish. You get one wish. You can't wish for 100 wishes. You get one wish, but you get a wish. So think about what you want for your wish. And the guy starts thinking, I could get 1,000 bricks of gold. I could get a, a yacht to sail the whole world and see the world. And he's thinking about all the things that he could have. And then the fish says, oh, but one other uh, condition of this wish. Whatever you wish for, your neighbor gets double. And he goes, oh, well, that's easy. Poke out one of my eyes. <laughs> that's how bent we are. To this darkness. I, I know some of you are like, that's crazy. Okay, do some serious self-analysis. Just on our thoughts. That's where we're bent, but that's not God. Jesus is bent wholly the other way. He went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to worry about that, so that we could have this salvation. And that's why Advent is so important. To us. He's come. He's coming again. It's the story of Micah, and it's the story of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and these very challenging messages, but, but they're calling to us deep in our souls, deep in our hearts. And so, God, we pray that um, in the midst of this, we would, we would see our need, and our need is holy and completely for you. So help us with that, and help us to turn to you. Uh, Help us to be willing to uh, be taught by you and to seek your wisdom, and God, to give our lives to you, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.